folklore, the beliefs, traditions, and culture of the people. Passed on in the most part through the spoken word, folklore expresses our values, our shared ideas with others. It is both how we were and how we are. Without a record, our customs and traditions may become lost to us in the present, but under the surface, we still draw on them. We still know. It's time to recall our forgotten history and to record the new. This is the Folklore Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. On this episode of the podcast, I'm delighted to welcome back a past guest, Ben Radford. Ben is deputy editor of Skeptical Inquirer, science magazine, and a research fellow with the non-profit educational organisation, the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry. His colleagues there include Bill Nye and Neil deGrasse Tyson. Ben's written thousands of articles on a wide variety of topics, including urban legends, mysterious phenomena, critical thinking and media literacy. He's the author or co-author or contributor to over 20 books, and he's won awards for his books, his films and his podcasts. He has his own new podcast, in fact, Squaring the Strange, which you might want to look up. Uh, And Ben also has a new book out called Investigating Ghosts, which looks at the methods of investigating alleged paranormal or haunted happenings from a scientific perspective. Uh, It's this book that we're going to talk about on the podcast today, and particularly the role that folklore can play when investigating stories of hauntings in locations, both historically and in the modern day. Hi Ben, welcome back to the Folklore Podcast. Thanks for having me on, it was great to talk to you. It's nice to have you back again. Um, for those that uh, have not yet caught up with your previous episode uh, talking about the Chupacabra, um, or for those that, that don't have a rounded knowledge of um, what you do, we covered a little bit in the introduction uh, of your biography and your role within Skeptical Inquirer magazine, for example. Could you just summarise in, in a kind of spoken paragraph what the main thrust of your work is for the listeners? That's actually a great question. I, I, a friend of mine who's known me for many years uh, the other day commented, and she said, you know, I don't really know what you do. <laughs> it was it was odd. I mean, you know, she, she knows about my books and all that stuff, but it's, it is it is sort of a, a strange little niche that I found myself in. Uh, and I wear a couple different hats. Um, my, my main job is as, a, um, as the editor for Skeptical Inquirer Science Magazine, and I've been there for nearly 20 years now. Uh, I'm also a research fellow for the, uh, the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry, uh, in the Center for Inquiry, which is a nonprofit education organization based in Buffalo, New York, uh, and I also do investigations into um, 
what some might call weird, mysterious, unexplained, anything from crop circles to chupacabras to ghosts to psychics and that sort of thing, all from a evidence-based perspective. And so my if there's a common thread through my research, it's trying to actually solve mysteries instead of just promoting them. Uh, mysteries are cool, but they should also be solved if you can, I believe, uh, and trying to encourage critical thinking and, um, and science literacy. Excellent. And, and that's an area that, that we're going to find some crossover in, I think, in this in this discussion where we talk about the role of folklore. Um, now, I'd like to discuss your new book, uh, which is called Investigating Ghosts, the Scientific Search for Spirits. Uh, and within this book, which um, I had sight of a little while ago, because you very kindly asked me to write a little piece for the dust jacket, telling everybody what a fantastic book it was. And indeed it is. Um, in this book, you're looking at the methodology that's used to investigate alleged hauntings. Now, that might not be necessarily going to a property that is said to be haunted now with a TV crew and all the paraphernalia that goes with it. Uh, it could be that. Or it could be looking at perhaps older hauntings uh, and older stories. Now, what we're not looking at here, I guess, either of us really, is uh, a discussion on the paranormal uh, and its authenticity, necessarily. I think what we're looking at here is um, how we look into stories of hauntings and we see how they've developed um, now, you approach this from lots of different backgrounds. Uh, so how does this inform your way of looking at hauntings? Oh, you're exactly right, Mark, and I appreciate your making that distinction. Uh, you know, my book is not about ghosts per se. Uh, there are many excellent books on ghosts uh, from a folkloric point of view, from a, a so-called ghost hunter point of view. Um, you know, ghost, uh, there's uh, Spook by Mary Roach. Gillian um, uh, Bennett has done some great work. Uh, she did a book called Last Poor Ghost. Uh, there's The Haunted uh, by Owen Davies. Um, and there's some, there's some really brilliant, really well done um, books on ghosts, uh, and that, that's certainly part of what I do. But specifically, my approach in this book is exactly as you said, the, looking at the historical, cultural, and sociological aspects of ghost investigation per se. That is, you know, looking at people's people's attempts to understand if ghosts are real. And that's exactly as you point out, that is in some ways a separate issue than whether ghosts exist or not. Um, and I'm, I'm glad you made that distinction. It's, it's sort of a nuance that's often lost, so it's nice to be able to explain that. You know, my background comes from a couple different areas. One of them is uh, journalism. Uh, I come from a long line of journalists. Uh, my father is a journalist. Both my grandparents were journalists, uh, grandfather journalists, etc. So I, I come from a, a long tradition of investigative journalism, magazine publishing, book publishing, that sort of thing. Um, but also, I also bring in psychology. Um, I, have a, I have a degree in psychology, a bachelor's degree in psychology, and a master's in education. So I have a, a, a fairly solid academic background in some of these topics and trying to understand, you know, why people, why people 
perceive things the way they do and and how they how those 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 perceptions interpretations can can go can go awry sometimes um and then folded in with that is also investigation um as you know i've done lots of you know hundreds of investigations on all manner of things from crop circles to ghosts to lake monsters and chupacabras (laughs) and this and that so uh, you know this this harkens back to what i was talking about before is my interest in in actually solving a mystery if we can uh now that doesn't mean that that all all questions all weighty questions are necessarily soluble i i'm certainly happy to admit that there are some things that we just can't know but in most cases um especially claims about uh ghosts or claims about about monsters or what have you uh often you can solve these and you can apply scientific principles to them um, and then the other, the other sort of the, the fourth leg uh, of the stool uh, would be folklore, um, and that's of course something that you and I share. And I've I've been an amateur folklorist for many years. I'm a member of the American Folklore Society, and I've spoken at uh, the AFS conferences and also the International Society for Contemporary Legend Research as well. And so I, that's sort of. That's sort of my my the, the the blend that sort of comes together, uh, and and I try to approach these angles through those prisms. And it's interesting as well that um, the, there is a, this kind of synergy, I think, between investigative process um, and an interest in folklore. Um, we had I don't know whether you heard a couple of episodes ago, um, David Clark, uh, UK oh, folklorist, talking about the um, legend of the crying boy paintings. Yes, um, I love his work on that. By the way, big shout out to Clark. I I I, I first saw his pieces in Forty in Times, and uh, I just I was just blown away. He was just a a great piece. I I have not heard that episode, but it will be in my queue next. <laughs> it, it was a really good discussion, and and, and David has a, a very long background in investigative journalism, uh, and that really shows through in the way that he approaches these. Uh, and it's part of the reason that he is an excellent folklorist. So so how do you see folklore? playing a role in in what i guess we need to call ghost hunting for the sake of a better term <laughs> we define our terms yes well you know it's interesting i'm glad you brought up you know clark i mean there's there is an interesting tension between folklorists and investigators uh that i that is not immediately apparent and it took me a while to sort of realize it um and i first noticed it about 10 years ago i had i had uh, reviewed a book uh by bill ellis um i've forgotten which one it was it could have been uh, aliens ghosts and cults the legends we live or something and um i'd done a review of it and and i had uh i had sort of gently chided uh he, he had made a a slight error it was not a big deal but he he slightly misquoted someone and i i corrected and he acknowledged it uh but it was interesting in, in his response and it was very polite but it was interesting you know because he was pointing out that and, and of course it's true that oftentimes folklorists are less interested in whether something is true in, is, we're more, much more interested in you know how how are these these narratives transmitted and you know what what variants do they they appear and, and you know all the different angles and aspects and variants and this and that and the question of whether a particular legend is true per se is sort of beside the point oftentimes and you you particularly see this of course with urban legends as you know um and so so i i, I try to bring that sort of folkloric perspective to these investigations but at the same time my ultimate goal is trying to figure out 
what what happened right what what is the truth what is what is actually the truth right so i i love researching legends and, and lore and, and ghost lore and, and and all these sorts of things uh with one eye and I, I i respect and admire the research and dedication in terms of you know tracking down the motifs and the variants and the themes and all that stuff fascinates me but at the same time i always want to take it another step further and say okay this is all great this is all interesting but is it true um, and so that's, that sometimes put me, puts me a little bit of Dutch with, with folklore uh, writ large. Um, but you know, in terms of like how folklore, the role that folklore plays in ghost hunting, there, there's a couple different aspects to it. One of them is that folklore uh, often creates expectations and, and psychological priming, right? And so, you know, when... When, when people talk about their ghost experiences, um, those experiences don't occur in a vacuum. Uh, people, particularly these days, are well informed about ghost stories, about narratives that they've seen. They've seen, you know, dozens or hundreds or thousands of TV shows and movies, and, and they, they have an idea of what a ghost story is supposed to look like, what a ghost is supposed to look like. Uh, you know, some of the themes and narratives surrounding them, and because of that, when they experience something that might be ambiguous or mundane um it they they when they try to make sense of it as as we all do you know when when we're trying to understand the world around us the 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 framework the 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 psychological framework that that fits into is often of course a ghost uh and it's not just of course restricted to to ghost investigations you see this you know basically in uh, in my 2010 book, Scientific Paranormal Investigation, How to Solve Unexplained Mysteries, I talk in, in one of the early chapters about you know, the, the notion of ambiguity and how it's interpreted. Uh, so, for example, you know, calling something a ghost is not helpful from an investigative point of view. It's, it's basically meaningless because all it is is, in label, is a label for an experience. And that, that experience might be any number of things. And that was one of the things that, that really struck me when researching this book was the wide variety of of, uh, of, um, of phenomena that are sort of lumped together in the public's consciousness about what ghosts are. Um, there was a, a book that came out a couple of years ago uh, by David Waskul, uh, W-A-S-K-U-L, um, or excuse me, Dennis Waskul and his wife. And he, in, in, that, in that book, they talk about just a wide variety of phenomena that are, that are called ghostly. Uh, you know, it could be an, an odd smell, uh, a strange light. Uh, it could be a full-figure apparition going down a hallway. It could be an uneasy feeling. It could be missing your keys. It could be uh, just an incredibly wide variety of, of phenomena that are sort of lumped together. And so that's why, you know, when someone says, I saw a ghost, my, my, my first question is, what do you mean by that? And I'm not being facetious. I, I genuinely want to know what, how how are you interpreting a ghost? What, what, you know, give me the facts and then, and then we'll see how well that fits into, into the, the, the larger, um, larger phenomena. And what you find is of course you have, you know, the, the, the modern, much of modern ghost hunting is a blend of cat of classical and modern ghost lore. So for example, you know, one old belief was that ghosts would, uh, that the presence of a ghost could be signified by a blue flame. So if a fire or a candle or something, uh, if the flame turned blue, that was a sign that a, a ghost was present. Now, that belief is pretty much antiquated these days. I mean, uh, there may be a few people who believe it, but it's certainly not one of the, <laughs> not, not a widespread ghost belief. But, you know, keep in mind that 
that belief came from somewhere. And for centuries, people assumed that that was a sign of a ghost, which, of course, is otherwise unseeable, you know, in, in many ways undetectable. And so what's happened over the past few decades is that you've sort of had this, 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 um, this, this, this bringing into ghost lore uh, more modern notions about ghosts. For example, the idea that ghosts em- emit uh, electromagnetic fields um, is, is, is a version of modern ghost lore. Uh, so again, obviously our, 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 our forefathers 200 years ago didn't know anything about EMF fields. And so there was no assumption that ghosts, uh, you know, altered the fields and, you know, to them it was, it was blue flames, but it's the same principle. And so, and so what you see these days is some of the, some of the basic tenets that are assumed about ghosts, uh, on TV, uh, by amateur ghost hunters, etc. Many of those are not, not only are they, are they sort of modern versions of older, older stories, but they're sort of, uh, in many ways, a modern version of, of this ghost folklore. Yeah, that's a, that's a, a very interesting point, and, and certainly one that we've covered before in other areas. Um, and within folklore, it's certainly the case that we're always looking for these cultural signifiers that that will make exactly that point. I mean, for example, the well, we've talked about this before, the similarities between fairy folklore in the older uh, reports and UFO abduction cases in more modern times, and how there are similarities between the two, and we find it as well. Um, with these kind of ghost stories for definite. There are a couple of other points there that are quite interesting that you made as well. Uh, The the point about the psychology is a very interesting one. And again, that's very important within the folklore record. Um, I agree, we certainly, we don't have a difference of opinion, but we have different approaches to these things. Um, And I absolutely love to see a mystery solved and... um, uh, some of the work that you've done in doing that with the Chupacabra, for example, was a, a good case. I think it's absolutely fantastic. Um, and for some of the things that I look at, that side is not so important because I'm interested in um, how stories have changed and developed over time and how they've spread. It's less important to me uh, whether they purport to be true or not, for example, um, and that that point about the psychology is a very interesting one. I've I've investigated um, cases of alleged um, hauntings for in, in various places before. Um, my wife and I, with some other people, invested investigated one a few years ago um, in a house where the occupier's son and his girlfriend. Um, were kind of key players in the investigation. Uh, it transpired later that that he was a uh, a fan of particular um, TV ghost hunting shows over here, and mm-hmm. the way that they presented their cases was certainly reflected in the way that he went about presenting his case to us and and how it was reported to us and how the investigation kind of panned out um, the details I won't go into but it was a very interesting example of how this psychology is important um, now the, there are two different types of ghosts that we're looking at here this this is <laughs> it's at the forefront of my mind at the moment because um, the book that I'm currently writing which is a collection of um, kind of extended essays on different folklore topics the first chapter is is looking at um, ghosts within folklore 
Um, and I've just finished writing a piece about um, the differences between folk ghosts and uh, alleged sort of modern day hauntings or eyewitness accounts. Um, do you see that there's a big gap between the two, between ghost experiences which are reported by an eyewitness now and ghost lore? Uh, there is, uh, and you know, it's, it's interesting that you brought up that case. You, you know, you, you talked about where the the people were, you know, heavily influenced by the TV shows, and I've encountered many similar cases uh, myself. Where you, know, you go into a place, and and again, you ask people, why do you think there's a ghost here? And you sooner or later, you often get some version of. Well, it's sort of like what I saw on TV. <laughs> you know, I just, you know, as as you know, a media critic, I I just sort of, you know, like really, this is, you know, you know, not everything on TV is real, right? You know, I'm trying to be polite, but it's just, yeah, you know, absolutely. and it's, I think that, and it's, um, again, it, it's it's interesting from a, from a folkloric point of view because you can see the folklore being transmitted essentially in real time. Um, you know, that's the the. The influence of television shows, particularly Ghost Hunters, which I think is now in its tenth season of Not Finding Ghosts, um, you know, it, it's it's it can't be understated. I mean, this is where a lot of people really get their ideas about what ghosts are and what methods can be used to find them. Um, and you know, my my concern is is um, you know you know when I as a, as a skeptic and investigator and a folklorist, you know, I my it's not that I'm complaining about people looking for ghosts uh, because I've done that. So I don't, you know, I don't make fun of people investigate ghosts because I have done that for, for many years. Um, so it's, it's not a subject of mockery for me. I, I, I take it seriously. Uh, I think the, these, 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 you know, these hauntings and these, these ghost reports are, are interesting and worthwhile. So I don't dismiss them out of hand. My goal uh, is with with writing the book, and more generally, is to increase the quality of the research. Um, you know, and so this is getting a little off topic, but I, I think it's it sort of ties back in because you know the. The, 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 my, my approach is is you know unabashedly skeptical, but skeptical doesn't mean you doubt everything. It doesn't mean you're a debunker. It just means you're asking for good evidence. And so you know what I've tried to do is say, yeah, ghosts are interesting, hauntings are interesting. All these all these beliefs are fascinating. And if you want to prove that they're real, then do good research. <laughs> Increase the amount of of science and skepticism. And so instead of one little gap, sort of to get back to your question, one gap between sort of real world ghost experiences and ghost lore, is that on on, on television shows and elsewhere, um, there they 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 superficially appear to be about proving the ghosts exist. Uh, but if you sort of look beyond the surface, you realize that in fact what they're really trying to do is trying to uncover and construct a long lost narrative starring one or two one or more ghosts. Uh, and this is again, this is where the folklore comes into it. Um, you know, usually the story is very melodramatic. Uh, the accounts of love and murder, tragedy. You know, the spirit that can't rest until their their murder is avenged. That sort of thing. Um, and and so so the instead of investigating, for example, a mysterious light or a strange sound or you know a teddy bear that flew across the room or something, which are alleged, you know. Examples of alleged, you know, paranormal activity. Instead, what most ghost hunters do is is a sort of a form a form of 
like amateur folkloric research and they try and piece together like okay let's try and figure out what's happened like who is the ghost that is here so instead of saying instead of beginning with you know is there a ghost here you know and trying to trying to prove that they begin with the assumption there's a ghost here and they're they're less interested in in decide in in trying to prove you know, uh, you know, empirically, whether there's a ghost there, that's not really their interest. Their interest is, can we name the ghost? You know, what did this ghost do? Why is this ghost here? Why? Uh, why are they not? Why are they not crossed over to their side? Was there some some horrible murder? Was their child taken away from them? You know, some some tragedy? Did they die in the Civil War? Right? And so, a lot of what they try to do is is piece together often really badly <laughs> but they they're trying to build a story and from that point of view uh it makes sense right humans are storytelling animals we love stories um and so that that's all well and good but it's important to recognize that that most of the tv ghost hunters and the amateur uh, amateur groups uh, as well ghost hunting groups as well they're they're not really trying to prove that ghosts exist. I mean, they that's sort of the premise, but in a way, they're just basically trying to build an interesting story for their audiences, um, and that's that's one of the that's one of the gaps. Yeah, and, and the storytelling aspect is a really important one in these presentations as well, isn't it? There is always some kind of dubious reconstruction of events at some point during the program. There will be a dramatised version of something. So this narrative is created, which then, of course, goes on and becomes absorbed into the folklore of the story and changes the story for the future. And then things drift off on another tack. And this wasn't something that I was particularly going to talk about as as, um, part of this, but... um, there is this other aspect of um, this ghost hunting being a very experiential thing. So there's a um, media lecturer, a Canadian media lecturer, who's based in the UK called Michael Coven, who wrote an excellent article for the Folklore Journal a few years ago on the British ghost hunting TV show Most Haunted. Uh, and particularly was looking at kind of legend tripping uh, and these kind of other aspects of of people then, you know, uh, acting out the parts and becoming part of the story themselves later on. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And, and again, there's, there's nothing wrong with, 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 with having folklore uh, in ghost investigations, I mean that's 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 part and parcel. In fact, you, you could argue that that much of, of of ghost investigation per se is based in and around folklore for the reasons that we've ta- that we've talked about before. Um, and so, you know, my my concern is not so much oh, you know, keep folklore out of ghost investigations. My concern is that ghost hunters, if they're trying to do credible research, need to recognize and account for. Um, for uh, for the, the 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 folklore that permeates uh, what they're trying to do, um, and again, this goes back to your previous question about the the sort of gap between real world ghost experiences and ghost lore. Um, you know, if if you look at the the methods that most TV ghost hunters use, and again, including most amateur ghost hunting groups, they they are far at variance to um to the the actual reports as i mentioned before i mean most ghost reports are pretty mundane they're not they're not particularly interesting uh so for example you know you you always see uh ghost hunters looking for ghosts in the dark uh 
Well, the fact is, if you actually do some research into uh, into uh, the conditions under which ghosts are actually reported, very few of them are reported in the dark. Um, some of them are, but but that's that's it's 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 not as if ninety percent of ghosts are reported in the dark, and so this is the conditions under which you expect to find them. Uh, same thing with the as I mentioned before, I, I touched on EMF detectors and this notion that ghost hunters have that somehow uh, that ghosts will either create or disrupt or deaden or do something to an electromagnetic field. Well, again, you know, if you look at at how the average person experiences a ghost they're not experiencing a ghost you know oh i was wandering with my with my emf detector walking the dog and i passed by the garage and there was a spike and so there's a ghost there that's 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 not a typical ghost experience uh and so it's it's, it's always interesting when you look at at you know how different the conditions are under which the average person actually says they experience something they consider to be ghostly or unexplained and the really contrived TV friendly sensational uh, you know melodramatic conditions under which the the ghost investigators actually look for ghosts um, and in, in my book I, in, in the first chapter I talk about uh, Eleanor Sedgwick who was a uh, who was a uh, researcher for the Society for Psychical Research, and uh, in in the SPR's third proceedings in 1885, she she published a a piece that summarized ghostly characteristics uh, that she had looked at. Um, and what's fascinating, again, this is 130 years ago, and Sidgwick is doing basically pioneer ghost research that still uh, apparently hasn't been read by today's ghost hunters because, you know, there were a con- couple conclusions, and you've, you're probably familiar with it yourself, and I would encourage listeners to check it out. Um, but, you know, I'll just, I'll just briefly touch on a couple of them. For example, Sidgwick concluded there's no um, indication that ghosts are connected with crimes or tragedies. So, again... C- you know, uh, in in opposition to the widely held assumption that ghosts are, you know, at the spot where someone died or someone was murdered or some some jealous love triangle was was consummated, there's no evidence of that. Uh, they some they can be seen in daylight or artificial light, daytime, nighttime. Um, there's no particular connection to uh, to tragedies or anniversaries, that sort of thing. Um, and so it's just it's just fascinating to sort of see. Uh, how how different um, the conditions are, and 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 you, you you almost have to sort of wonder why it is that the modern ghost hunters are so disconnected with how actual ghosts are experienced. Yeah, so we've got a number of ways there, haven't we? That that these modern ghost experiences are at variance with with um, folkloric ghost stories or, or these sorts of things. So so how is folklore? making its way into ghost investigations well there's a couple ways um you know one way that we've touched on is for example through uh through tv shows and again that's a that's a very common situation where uh as you and i both know uh tv shows such as uh paranormal or, you know the ghost hunters or the the most uh, the, the all the all its all its spin-offs and variants uh and you know this is this is one of the ways that that folklore permeates the ghost hunting and again sort of misinforms um misinforms the public you also have you know just general scary stories um you know campfire tales uh we all love them you love them i love them this is why we do what we do right there's nobody that doesn't love some spooky story uh again we're we're storytelling animals and and we love this sort of thing um and and so 
you know, there's there's a natural tendency to 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 bring in those those narratives and those themes into uh, into ghost investigations. As I mentioned before, oftentimes trying to construct a narrative that may be largely or entirely fictional. <laughs> you know, I mean, I've I've seen cases where you know there will be ghost hunters that will weave together this narrative, including you know, oh, there was this this you know this girl died here and she was six years old, and this is her ball. We found this in the crawl space of the attic, and we brought in a psychic uh, or a psychic medium, a sensitive, and she told this whole story. And there's no basis in truth to any of it. I mean, it's, just, it's entirely made up, or in some cases, it's it's sort of retrofitted. So, for example, you know, well, what was the person's name? Well, it was Mary. Okay, well, Mary is one of the most common female names and has been for centuries. So the likelihood that someone named Mary may have died there or lived there at some point or died there, uh, it's it's very likely if you dig hard enough. And so, again, this this is a way that the, the folklore can sort of be brought into the, the ghost investigations. And and just to just to touch back on the on the on the media depictions, um, you know, one of the most common things is, is as I mentioned, uh, in, in films. So, for example, you have the, the Paranormal Activity uh, series, which, is, of course, is a low-budget, you know, sort of found-footage uh, verite-type stuff. It's very cheap to produce, uh, sort of Blair Witch stuff with, with the Paranormal Activity. Um, and, you know, it's interesting when you, when you look at the psychology of, the, of, of that sort of story because – I'll give you a quick example. I remember a few years ago, I'd gone to see uh, one of the many re-releases of The Exorcist. I think I think Billy Friedkin has done you know eighty different you know special director's cuts to you know milk another milk another dime out of it. Uh, but there was one a, a few years ago, and it was interesting. I, I came out of that, and you know I've I've researched you know possession exorcism that sort of thing and i've i've researched the the so-called true story behind the exorcist you know that, that william peter blatty wrote about and so i'm i'm watching this as entertainment and oh this is an interesting story and you know i i know some of the some of the characters behind it but there were two women in front of me that were leaving they were probably in their early 20s and i i overheard them talking as we left the theater and it was interesting hearing them because they said they said oh one one said to the other well you know this they said you know well that was a great movie and, and you know that really happens and it was interesting because again I've I've researched you know possession and exorcism that sort of thing and I realized that that I and the other you know two hundred people in the theater we were all watching the same film. And we can all agree, oh, these are actors, this is a script, these are special effects. I mean, we all know that what we were being presented is fictional. But at the same time, people can look at these things, for example, paranormal activity films and, you know, these, these many variants, the Ouija board films and whatever else, and think, well, yes, this is fictional, but this does happen. Uh, you know, the same way, for example, there might be a film about you know the Iraq War or firefighters, right? And so we know this is a fictional story by actors and the scriptwriters and directors and all that. But at the same time, we say, yeah, but that really happens. I think that often happens with a lot of these, uh, a lot of these, these, these ghost-themed uh, movies and stories and and entertainment depictions. Is there? There is an underlying assumption. Well, yeah, it's the, but the, this really happens. Uh, so that that's part of what goes on. Also, you also have the folklore being supplied, as I mentioned before, by psychics and mediums who will sort of fill in the gaps. 
So you'll have ghost hunters who will go to a location and they'll poke around and they'll turn off all the lights for reasons I still don't understand um, and look for these things. And and if, if, they, if they can't quite piece together a story, they'll call in a psychic or a medium or sensitive to say, okay, well, you know, we were here, we found a couple of weird items, we think there may be something weird in this room, can you communicate with the spirit? And, of course, those mediums and those psychics and intuitives, of course, they are well-versed in folklore. They're well-versed in what makes a good story, what makes what makes a sensational story. And so this is another way that, that folklore you know, makes its way into ghost investigations is through the mediums that will, you know, I think often sincerely believe the story, uh, but they'll, 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 they'll sort of inject it in there. Um, and of course, there's also the. Uh, in some cases, you have conveniently packaged set of real or fictional sp- specific characters. Uh, for example, at the Whaley House, or the Myrtles Plantation in Louisiana, um, various haunted hotels. Uh, I investigated a hotel in uh, in Cimarron, New Mexico, northern New Mexico, called the St. James. Uh, and one of the most notorious stories of, is of a cowboy there. Um, and there's, oh, well, this is a cowboy. He's mean, and don't go in this room. It's locked for your own safety. There's this whole story behind it. Uh, but when I researched it, I found there was no evidence that the cowboy ever existed at all. Uh, and this cowboy was being presented along with known historical figures from the Wild West, you know, Jesse James, Wyatt Earp, uh, all these other all these other folks that were historical figures. And this fictional cowboy was sort of shoehorned in, lumped in with these other with these other supposed, supposed ghosts. Um, so th- there's a lot of that. And of course, as I mentioned, a lot of times the 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 setting itself will provide the cast of characters, right? So if you're if you're at Gettysburg and you're if you're with a group of ghost hunters who are looking into the Civil War ghosts, um, of course you're going to expect people to, uh, if they see something vague or you know strange out of the corner of their eye, they're going to interpret a, a Civil War soldier uh, or a gunfighter. If you're in you know, Deadwood, uh, South Dakota, for example, and so you know each of these places, um, each of these alleged ghost haunted locations in a way it brings their own folklore along with it. And it's sort of, it's prepackaged for these ghost investigators to look at. I think one of the biggest ways in which um, we see folklore changing or stories within folklore changing and developing is this filling in of the gaps of the unknown. Um, I think when you look at a lot of films, possibly the five most frightening words that you can see at the header of any film based on a true story <laughs> frightening or funny depending on your point of view well it, it's most of it i will accept it's it i have a problem with the word based in these things i mean take for example um the second conjuring film based on a mm-hmm. true story okay based on the enfield poltergeist uh, which didn't feature a nun which hardly featured lorraine and ed warren at all uh, yet somehow the movie seems to take a completely different tack so based <laughs> incredibly loosely on a true story in so much as it featured the word enfield and that was really about right it. well that's that's all you need for a, for a movie tagline yeah, right exactly but that's how these stories then change and develop isn't it is the filling in of these gaps um, it, it, it no, it absolutely is, and, and again, part of the reason is that ghost hunters are forced to do that because in creating. I mean, as I said before, ghost hunters don't want to present, and they don't want, as a result of their days or weeks 
of investigation, they don't want just a an ambiguous, you know, what's called EVP or, or ghost voice. You know, rawr, rawr, rawr. Did you hear that? Rawr, rawr, rawr. Right? Say, so, uh, we, we found something weird. Here's a photograph of something blurry in the corner. I mean, a lot of ghost hunters recognize the poor quality of their evidence. Um, they, they may not admit that publicly, but they, on some level, they realize that a, a, a blurry photo and an ambiguous murmur on a, on an audio tape, uh, aren't good evidence. And so they're forced to bring in folklore. They're forced to create a story and narrative around that. Um, and, and again, that's, that, that's all well and good as long as they recognize what they're doing and the public recognizes what they're doing um, and says, okay, well, you know, this is all speculation and guesswork and conjecture unless it's verified through historical research. Now, I'm going to move on a little bit uh, at this point to look at um, some of the um, methodology that's involved in this, for example. And I, I just want to, um, I'm going to read uh, one sentence from your book to kind of get into this point. Um, and this is taken from page 86 for anybody who has the book and wants to look it up. Uh, and you say, much of what passes for ghost investigation, both on television and in ghost hunting groups across the country, is what's called anomaly hunting, or basically looking for anything weird or unusual. Can you elaborate on what you mean here by anomaly hunting as being a method of ghost hunting more generally? Yeah, sure, absolutely. Um, I think anomaly hunting is one of the basic, um, one of the most basic fundamental failures of modern ghost hunting. Um, instead of of approaching, uh, let's just back up a second. So. In, in most investigations, what you do is you collect evidence and then you try to piece together a scenario or a framework that fits that evidence. So, for example, there's a dead body, uh, there's a gun, say, 20 yards away or meters away for, for my friends across the pond, uh, and, um, and maybe there's a distraught girlfriend uh, uh, a few blocks away. Um, maybe there's a surveillance camera, maybe there's eyewitnesses, what have you. And so you, th there's these individual discrete pieces of evidence. We have a body, we have a possible, uh, way of, uh, ca cause of death. We have all these pieces together. And what you try to do is basically provide a context for what happened. That's, that's basically how you solve mysteries. Uh, the process of solving mysteries is basically c putting together or assembling the correct context uh, that makes a seemingly unexplainable or inexplicable or, or mysterious event seem uh, seem explainable or, or understandable. So that that's the process. And it, but you, again, you have to begin with certain discrete pieces of evidence and and and, and things to work from. Um, and that, that's how you approach all, all research, all, all investigation, is you, you assemble the facts, you, you tease out what's true, what's not true, and you, you build a hypothesis based on that, and you, 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 know, you move forward from there. But oftentimes, almost virtually all the time, I, I would argue, modern ghost hunters take the opposite approach. Right, so I, I mentioned a little while ago that, for example, many many uh, ghost reports are something very mundane or or t typical, uh, ambiguous, right? Some some weird sound late at night, or a, a weird light or something, or an odd feeling if you go in the garage or something. These are things that that for the most part 
uh, ghost investigators don't uh, don't really follow up on. Uh, occasionally they do. I mean, they'll, oh, you know, maybe we figured out what this weird sound is, whatever else. But for the most part, they they want to actively investigate. They don't want to just take something you were given. Here's a ghost photograph. Here's here's you know here's a here's an experience. They're less interested in explaining. The, the piece of evidence than, as I mentioned, in, in constructing a narrative, in constructing a story. And so, so what they do is they try, they seek out their own evidence. And so, so instead of, of paying close attention to and verifying the authenticity of pieces of evidence, for example, a, a ghostly photograph or something weird that four people saw in a weird room that, you know, may or may not have been unexplainable. Instead of really digging into that and examining, you know, how can we, how can we, we reconstruct the events and, you know, what really happened? I mean, they'll pay attention to that a little bit, but they're more interested, okay, this is all well and good. Uh, we'll meet here at 7 o'clock, bring your EMF detectors, bring your magnetometers, We'll turn off the lights. We'll walk around for six or seven hours until three o'clock in the morning, and we'll look for anything weird. And that's what's that's what I call anomaly hunting because they're looking for something weird. And on the surface, that seems plausible, right? Because you know ghosts are allegedly paranormal—that is, <laughs> unnatural, unnormal, what have you. And so, yeah, you want to look for something weird. The problem is that in the process. Of, of hunting for anomalies in the process of looking for weird things that generate their own false uh, false positives. They generate their own red herrings. And so, so for example, let's say that a ghost hunting group goes into a location um, and they're all armed with audio recorders and video cameras and they shut off all the lights starting at, at midnight and for six hours they wander around the darkened, <laughs> darkened building uh, with cameras and audio, and they do all these sorts of things, and they later comb through it. And, of course, this is hours and hours of footage. Let's say you have six members of a team. Each of them is recording for six hours. You've got, you know, 36 hours of potential footage uh, just from one recording. So you've got potentially hundreds of hours uh, of, of audio recording, video recording, whatever else, to comb through. And what they do is they, they, they listen and they, they, they search for anything that might be weird in the film or in the video or in the audio. And so, for example, if at 2.15 a.m. One, one of the ghost hunters' uh, cameras shows some sort of weird glitch or light or something, oh, look, this is a ghost, this is a ghost. And it's like, well, no, not it, it may be a ghost, it may not be a ghost, but you're generating your, your own your own evidence and oftentimes your own red herrings. Um, and so it, it's you know, anomaly hunting again. It's it's basically the default method that's used by TV ghost hunters, particularly the ones that engage in what they call lockdowns, right? So you'll have a handful of people, and this is this is wildly popular because it seems very dramatic. You know? I was locked down in a haunted house for six hours, and the demons almost got me, but I got away, and check out my new special coming up at six, right? Yeah. They, they love this sort of thing, uh, but there's there's no investigative strategy behind that. There's no there's no logic, there's no rationale. It's, 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 just, it's just looking for anything weird. The problem is that that number one, anything weird does not necessarily mean unexplained. It doesn't necessarily mean ghost. It just means something that somebody, for whatever reason, thought was was odd. Maybe there's a strange sound, whatever else. There, there, there's there's nothing there. And so instead of instead of going back to the original ghost experience reports, you know, this happened. This is weird. I saw this. Here's a photograph. Here's something. You know, can you help me explain what happened? That gets short shrift in favor of. 
the much more dramatic uh, or potentially dramatic, you know, coming through hours and hours of audio for any weird sound or blip or, or light, which which doesn't necessarily have any correspondence with what was originally reported. So which aspects of this uh, of ghost hunting methodology do you see as being influenced by folklore? Well, there's a couple of them. One of them, as I mentioned, is basically the the premises under which ghosts are are investigated. Um, as I mentioned before, you know, the, the average person, when they're experiencing, when they say they experienced a ghost, it's not because they, they, they don't mean that as they were going to bed uh, late at night, they, they had a ghost, they had an EMF detector in front of them that suddenly spiked <laughs> right before midnight and they went to sleep after watching late, late night comedy. That's not what they mean. They mean they saw a figure at the bed, they saw, you know, the, a weird smell in the hallway, these sorts of things. And so, Oftentimes, the, the, the premises under which these ghost hunters investigate are based largely on on folklore, uh, which is fine if that folklore has been verified, if, if, if we know for a fact this is, this is an actual thing. Uh, another way is in the, the classifying categorization of ghosts or hauntings. Um, it's very common if you look through uh, ghost uh, books by ghost hunters, and I, I, I had to spend many, many nights doing so. And I hope my readers appreciate it. Um, combing through books written by by ghost hunters, often name brand ghost hunters, uh, Nick Groff, for example, the Ghost Hunters on TV, people like that, Joshua Warren, and when you read their books and you try to parse out what exactly they mean. Um, by, by ghosts or, you know, what is the scientific basis upon which they're, they're conducting their research investigations, which is also, which, which is often none. Um, they will often have, um, they'll begin by saying, well, you know, there are five categories of ghosts. I'm like, really? I, I didn't know that we had all recognized there are only five categories. Do tell what, what exactly are they? Well, as we all know, there's residual hauntings, there's poltergeists, there's and so they they have all these different theories, uh, and it's all speculation. It's it's like you know wondering you know how many debating how many angels can dance on the head of a pin, um, but you know that's that's sort of a modern version of of how uh, the, the ghost hunting, the ideas about ghosts are influenced by folklore. Uh, so again, you have these these so called hard and fast rules about what what the different different types of ghosts are and and certainly you can you can classify a ghost experience um i mean i wouldn't deny that i mean certainly there's poltergeist noisy ghost i mean those those reports have certain certain characteristics or aspects that we can we can categorize but it's important to not confuse a ghost or a type of ghost with a type of experience of a ghost because they're two very different things, and oftentimes the ghost hunters confuse them. Um, as you mentioned before, there's also uh, legend tripping and ostension. So you have people who will um, who will, will go to locations based uh, not on any particular specific ghostly uh, reports or evidence, but just because, hey, everybody, you know, uh, the, the full moon's coming up, and if we go to the trestle in the local woods, you know, at this particular time, there there's supposed to be a ghost train coming along, and we'll we, we'll check it out. So, you know, it's all it's all it's it's all the it's, it's all the accoutrements and the, the narratives that people love. And again, that that's all well and good, but it doesn't necessarily have any real connection to ghosts or ghost investigations. 
Um, another aspect, uh, another way that, that ghost hunting is influenced by folklore, and this is actually very common, is uh, when ghost hunters will motivate, um, they, they, will, they will ascribe spe- specific motivations to ghosts that are derived directly from legends and lore. Uh, and you know, you, you know this as well as anybody, right? You have, you have the, the typical reasons why a ghost is still with us, right? So there's revenge, there's uh, the story of going mad over a child's death. Uh, jealous lovers, uh, you know the the person whose hair turned white overnight, you know, because they they saw a ghost or they were the the had some other ghostly experience. Uh, you know, this is all high melodrama. Um, and uh, but, but again, this it's 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 drive when when you look at the motivations that ghost hunters say. You know, why, why is for example why a ghost does something. Right, so they'll, they'll, a ghost hunter will go into a location, and well, it's said that the ghost haunts this particular room. Well, instead of, of course, verifying the, that there is a ghost there, a there's a ghost there, and b it, it haunts that room, they immediately go to, well, why, why, why is the ghost in this particular room? Well, let's figure it out, right? And so they go, you know, first they determine the gender of the ghost. Oh well, we think it was, let's bring in a psychic. The psychic says it's a female ghost. Well, my God, why would why would the ghost stay in this room? Maybe, maybe she, maybe her only child died in childbirth in this very room in 1832. <laughs> okay, right. So they just started building all these constructions behind it. Uh, you know, so it, that's why it stays in room. That's why it scares people. It's angry. Um, there's all these motivations, and and any time you have a ghost hunter that is is claiming to read a ghost's mind, <laughs> basically, or know why a ghost does something, they're they're borrowing from folklore. So we are approaching these stories from two discrete angles, let's say, um, for you as uh, primarily an investigator and um, solver of mysteries. You are approaching these stories to look for what is actually going on, what has actually happened in these cases. For me, as a folklorist... This is not so important because I'm looking at a bigger and longer picture often um, and looking at where this story might have come from uh, in relation to other stories and other themes and motifs and how this all ties together. But we certainly have common ground. We have common ground with the, the psychology angle. We have common ground with the tracing of stories. So is it fair to say, do you think, from your perspective as an investigator that folklore has a definite role to play when we're looking at ghost hunting and ghost investigation uh, i would say that that's fair to say i i think you know i think we're we're, we're approaching it from essentially the same angle um you know i my bigger concern as i mentioned is that that the people that spend their time, and in some cases, you know, months or years of their lives in small fortunes. I mean, I, I've met ghost hunters who, who are bragging about the new $15,000 getup they have with the, the new cameras and the high-tech this and that. I mean, there are people, it's all, well, it's all fun and games to some people. 
Uh, but to many people, ghost hunting is a—it's—it's you know, it's probably the world's most popular pastime in terms of the in terms of the paranormal. Uh, there's a handful of, of course, crappies and, and Bigfoot researchers and whatever else, but ghosts are by far the most popular subject for for paranormal investigation. And there's there's groups all over the world, of course. There's you know, amateur groups, uh, TV shows. I mean, it's just widely popular. And and so you know, uh, my hope would be that these ghost hunters, these these ghost investigators, the people who, by and large, are sincere good people. They I don't I don't make fun of them. They're 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 you know I, I love this stuff as much as you do and they do. So again, my goal is not to poo poo them or to dismiss them. My goal is to try and get them to recognize the role that folklore plays in their beliefs. Um, and to recognize it as lore and take it into account, and that's that's one of the biggest issues to me is if you if you if you're not paying attention to the the stories behind it, and you just think it's all it's all just you know if you if you're mistaking folklore for for actual factual stories, then um, then you're you're going to be in in in, in trouble, um, you, you know, and so that's. You know, it's that 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 I think that's basically the 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 problem that I have with with the, the role that folklore is in investigations is that you know, collecting ghost stories is not investigation. Um, it's fun, it's interesting, but it's not investigation. And so so often I see people who um, are 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 almost certainly I, I hate to be dismissive, but they're almost certainly wasting their time uh, and money because they're not finding good evidence of ghosts. Um, and so, and part of it is because they are, they're, they're following red herrings and they're following fabricated information from psychics, uh, who in many cases are, are well-intended. They're not liars, they're not hoaxers. They genuinely believe the, the narratives and stories they're telling that they have absorbed over the years from TV shows and campfire stories and movies and, and just their basic human knowledge of what makes a good story. Um, and so that's really sort of my, my concern is, is that the ghost hunters, if they're trying to solve the mystery, if they're trying to genuinely actually determine whether or not ghosts exist, then they're going about the wrong way. And, and part of the reason they're going about the wrong way is they're mistaking folklore for factual information and trying to follow up on that, using that as a basis for research. Yeah, and there's a really interesting point to make here, I think, and and that is that um, I mean, you as an investigator are approaching a lot of this from the sceptical, and by sceptical I mean uh, applying critical thinking angle. Now, that naturally means that lots of people who are the opposite to that, i.e. believers, um, will email you in capital letters and tell you all sorts of things about why you're wrong and why they're right and and um lots of capital letters lots of capital letters but i think an important point to make here um about this book is that it doesn't uh try and preach to people that they are wrong uh nor does it try to make fun of people um who have a belief system that is different to your own uh it tries to be a constructive and well-researched approach to good methodology. Now, is that why you wrote the book primarily? What did you want to get out of this by writing it? 
No, I that's exactly right, and I appreciate your kind words because that that is exactly what I was trying to do. Um, you know, it's you know my approach again. It's it's I'm just laying it out for for people to see and just say, look, if you're interested in ghosts, uh, that's great. <laughs> I am. You are. <laughs> I think we all are in some point. So that's that's wonderful. That's great. Um, if you if you just like ghost stories, that's wonder, wonderful and great too. You should listen to uh, to Mark Lerman's folklore podcast. <laughs> you should read different books by various wonderful uh, ghost writers uh, and, and ghost writers. Double pun there. Um, that's all well and good. That that's that's great. However, if your goal and your intent and what you're spending so much time and energy on is to verify the existence of ghosts, that's another matter. And if you're, if that's what you're trying to do, then this is a guidebook to how to go about that um, scientifically so that you, you can improve the quality of your evidence. Uh, and so you're not complaining that, that, you know, the scientists don't take you seriously or that, you know, your, 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 uh, your wife thinks you're crazy because there's ghosts, um, because you've, you've managed to increase the quality of the research and prove either a, the ghosts do in fact exist or B you've managed to gain a better understanding of why people think that ghosts exist. If in fact they don't. Yeah, and it is, I I think, um, a very important book if you want to look at investigative technique. Um, uh, it was a point that I made on my jacket blurb for it, uh, that it is uh, a sensible and a scientific approach. Um, and it is, in many ways, um, I guess, a serious book as well. Um, but... As we approach the end of this interview, let's just um, throw in a little bit of a dead donkey at the end and say, what, if anything, did surprise or amuse you in the many years of research that you've put into producing this methodology? Uh, the dead donkey, I like that. I'll have to use that. Um, well, there, there, there's, uh, there's a couple of things that surprised you. One of them was... Um, I was surprised by uh, how much disarray there is in the field uh, of ghost hunting. Uh, I don't know why it surprised me. I guess in retrospect, I should have expected that. But you know, when I began researching and and looking into the, for lack of a better word, believers' claims, uh, because as a skeptic, that's what you have to do. the The believers don't necessarily have to engage in skeptical materials. In fact, often they don't because they don't think it's relevant. Because oh, well, they're just naysayers. They're just debunkers. Blah blah blah. And so, oftentimes, the the people that believe in crop circles, the believe people that believe in ghosts or lake monsters or Bigfoot or chupacabras, they won't they won't seek out or oftentimes even be aware of. Uh, quality skeptical analyses um, by you know Daniel Loxon, Don Prothero. I've done some sort of, of course, uh, Sharon Hill and others. They're, it's just not on their radar, so because they don't they they don't think it's relevant to them because they're not taking it as sort of you know seriously. Uh, but uh, that's not true of the skeptic's point of view. The skeptic has to read and understand the the so-called believer side of things in order to address them. And as I read all the all the scads of books, I was surprised uh, to see just what a wide variety of of what a wide variety of explanations are offered for ghosts, um, even by seasoned ghost hunters, so-called experts with, in some cases, decades of research under their belts. Um, you know, I, I can we don't have time now, but I, I mean, I can name you a half dozen different theories of what ghosts are. 
uh, per, you know, that, are, that are promoted by um, by you know name brand ghost hunters on TV, ranging from you know ghosts are hallucinations, uh, ghosts are uh, residual feelings, the so-called stone tape theory, the idea that traumatic events such as murders or suicides uh, are sort of absorbed into the environment, such as you know stones and trees and rocks, and later emerge uh, as ghosts. Um, you know, some people think the ghosts are uh, projections from our own minds. Some people think they're spirits of the dead. I mean, there's there's such a wide variety. And what surprises me is how contradictory they are. Because, you know, if, if you assemble the, the world's top ten experts on ghosts in the world, and if they, if they give four or five mutually exclusive definitions of ghosts, you know, a, a, a ghost cannot be both... Uh, you know, the spirit of a dead person and a hallucination. You know, it can't be something in the environment and something from another dimension. I mean, so these are these are these are mutually exclusive, contradictory theories. And if the world's experts or so-called experts can't even agree on what ghosts are, then it makes you wonder: Well, how good is the evidence? If you know, how, how do you even go about investigating these sorts of things if the if the basics and fundamentals can't even be nailed down? Absolutely, and I think that um, for for all the differences that we find in in this evidence, one way or another, I think the one thing that we have managed to successfully do during this talk uh, is is to bring these two areas of, of scientific investigation and folklore very firmly together. And I'm pleased that we've done that because as as I sit and um, listen to those closing statements that you've just made i notice and i had not noticed this before in very tiny writing on the top of the back of your book jacket the publisher's classification for where this book sits is science stroke folklore it is and i i'm pleased about that i i i'm comfortable with this book sitting literally on the border between science and folklore yes and i think we have brought those those two uh uh, sections together across that border very well tonight um, Ben thank you so much for joining us once again on the podcast it's always a pleasure to talk to you um, if people want to get hold of a copy of this book and read it for themselves and uh, I strongly suggest that they do where would you like them to do that uh, probably the the most uh, the mo the easiest place is probably Amazon.com. Uh, I always try to encourage people to uh, to uh, to support the local independent bookstores, although uh, the distribution is not always good. Uh, so you may be forced to do that. It's currently available as an ebook as well um, and and paperback. And uh, yeah, it's been out for a few weeks and it's getting some some good reviews. And uh, I appreciate your uh, your your uh, your help on it and. Um, and uh, this is—I've really enjoyed this conversation. I think it's—it's—it's it's, it's an angle into folklore that isn't often discussed, and I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. Absolutely, and and for my part as well, I—I I do, as people know, try and present not only the more traditional folklore angles on this podcast, but also look at these these kind of different areas where folklore really is playing a part. And I think we've done that very successfully. Ben, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Mark. My thanks once again to Ben Radford for another fascinating talk. If you want to learn more about Ben's work, then do head over to his website at www.benjaminradford.com. You can also look him up on Wikipedia, where you'll find a lot of information about him, most of which is probably true, or at least partly true, as it is Wikipedia.
More about Ben can also be found on the Folklore Podcast website. Just head over to the guests page and you'll find links there to some of Ben's work. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The Folklore Podcast is written and presented by me, Mark Norman. To find out more about my research and writing, visit www.facebook.com slash marknormanfolklore or on Twitter with the handle at Mr underscore Mark underscore Norman. Research assistance is provided by Tracy Norman. Visit her website at www.tracynormanswitch.com to follow her historical research and projects. The Folklore Podcast will always be free to listen to and tries to avoid annoying advertising or sponsorship messages, but it cannot sustain itself. We are grateful for the support of all of our patrons who, for as little as $1 a month, earn themselves great rewards whilst ensuring our future. For more details, please visit www.patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast. If you cannot support us in this way, please share the episodes on your social media and leave positive reviews. This really helps the audience for the podcast to grow. Visit www.thefolklorepodcast.com for more episode and guest information, to buy from the web store, or to sign up for free newsletters or get in touch. The Folklore Podcast theme music was written and performed by Gurdy Bird. Thanks for listening.